So Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at several passages. The theme for this afternoon and uh, for the last, uh, for last week and this week and the next few weeks is uh, who runs the church? It's a good question, right? Who runs the church? Or to say it more accurately, authority in the church. The question is to whom are Christians accountable, if to anyone? Where is spiritual authority for the people of God? And the answer last week was to identify the ultimate authority of the church as none other than Jesus Christ our Lord, who is the head of the church, the overseer of the church. He is the one who sees to it that his church is built and guides and rules his church. And so we were reminded last week that Whenever we meet together, brothers and sisters, whenever we meet as a congregation here, as one expression of the body of Christ, we want to cultivate an awareness, a sensitivity to the presence and the rule of Jesus Christ over our congregation as He is ruling over all of His people. We want to come with ears to hear His voice, not merely to hear the good opinions of some nice teachers and good friends that we have, but come ready to really hear the Word of Christ. And He is the one that uh, is in authority over His church, the one and only. Now, having said that, and and, uh, conceding that authority is inherent only in Christ... It is, however, invested in three entities. That is, Christ's own single authority is vested in three entities. And the first is which, of which I'd like to talk about today. The first one is also foundationally important for the church. We want to know who rules the church. We need to think in terms In this world, humanly speaking, we need to think in terms, first of all, of the foundation of the church, and that is the apostles of Jesus Christ, Christ's apostles, sometimes called the disciples, sometimes just simply referred to as the twelve. Now, that term can refer generally to anyone who's sent out on a special mission. You know that the word means someone who's sent. I think originally it could even have been used for... uh, a ship's captain or, or someone who goes out um, under the authority of someone else. So the word can be used generally that way, but in the New Testament, it usually refers to the apostles of Christ. That is, those men who were directly commissioned by Jesus and bearing His direct authority upon their lives and ministries, the apostles. Now, originally, there were how many apostles? Well, pretty easy, not a trick question. Um, however, and, and, and by the way, the, the New Testament makes it explicit. It, it outlines uh, the names of these different men uh, in both Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We do know, of course, that Judas was not truly a disciple of Christ, that, he, that his, um, his being a part of the inner circle of Christ was planned by God. Uh, was predicted by the Scriptures. Nothing took God by surprise about this. 
and uh, proved in the end not to be truly an apostle of Christ. And that's what brings us to Acts chapter 1, because now here are the disciples, the apostles, the eleven without Judas, who are contemplating um, what to do next and what the Scripture says about their role as Christ's apostles. And so I'd like to begin uh, in verse 15, Acts 1, 15. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers... The company of the persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and allotted his share in in this ministry. Now, this man acquired a field, Luke says, and... uh, and he acquired it with the reward of, of his wickedness, that 30 pieces of silver. And falling headlong, he burst in the middle and his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. And now he says, Peter says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one who dwells in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that, our, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed, and notice what they say. Speaking to Christ, they say, You, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So here is the replacement of Judas being made... um, in, um, in consideration of the Scriptures and the prophetic uh, uh, statements of the Scriptures and in dependence on the Lord in prayer. Um, they're praying for Jesus Christ Himself to choose another apostle and uh, through the casting of lots. And uh, the Scripture does tell us that the lot is cast in the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. They're looking to God to fill this place. And uh, so we have now the entrance of this 12th apostle. Which brings up a question then that almost everybody has at this point, which is, okay, we know that there's at least another apostle, right? And his name is Paul. So what about Paul? Is Paul one of the 12? Um, Or is Matthias the 12th apostle? Uh, Paul certainly was acknowledged to be one of the twelve, one of the apostles. Um, He was acknowledged by the twelve to be an apostle, I should say, an apostle of equal standing, Um, though Christ Christ himself had called Paul just as surely as he called uh, Matthias. Some people have wondered whether maybe the, the apostles here were mistaken, whether they sort of jumped the gun in uh, Acts chapter 1, whether they got ahead of the Lord. 
Um, and Luke doesn't really give any indication in Scripture anywhere uh, where this is a, a bad thing. In fact, it's portrayed you know, positively. Matthias is presumably within the company of the apostles as you continue to turn the pages in the book of Acts, and God is approving of them with signs and wonders and, and miraculous works. So that complicates our question, and it's further complicated if you think about it, and I'm just laying the groundwork here, so stay with me. It's further complicated if you think about at least one more person in the New Testament who was called an apostle. Maybe you might think of a couple others, maybe in a different sense, but uh, there does seem to be indication that James, the brother of the Lord, was also numbered among the apostles, that is, the half-brother of Christ. Um, if, you, if you see it in Galatians chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, but in Galatians chapter 1 in particular, it, it seems very clear that James is considered to be one of the apostles. And there does seem to be a kind of uh, special apostleship that the Lord himself calls James and Paul to. James as a special apostle to the Jews, and Paul as a special apostle to the Gentiles. And I ran across a, an illustration the other day about maybe a good way to think about this. A few illustrations I'll throw out, but the first one I, I just came across the other day, and I thought it was perhaps helpful. In terms of thinking about a college, um, a group of teachers, a group of faculty, and maybe you can imagine a small college somewhere and they have a, it's begun to uh, teach some things and they have a small faculty and they have five, five permanent faculty members, those people who, who teach the people who come every week. But they also have a couple others who are adjunct faculty. That is that they are part of the faculty and yet they're, they're not part of those original five faculty members. And you might even call the faculty the five. We have the five. We have our faculty. And yet, in an extended way, the faculty also involves those who are adjunct faculty, as it were, who are truly faculty in that university or in that college, but, um, but in, in, a, in, a, in a slightly different nuance of it um, in terms of those who are the core faculty. Um, and, and maybe that's a way to sort of begin to think about the apostleship of Paul or of, uh, of James as um, adjunct apostles, as it were, not chosen during the earthly lifetime of Christ. Of course, now, now Matthias isn't either, but he comes and fills the place of one of those who is. Um, or, or maybe, you know, if you're into sports like I am... Um, which is a laugh, I'm not really into sports, but I do. I did find out with a little bit of research that there is a conference within the NCAA called the Big Ten, right? Did you all know that? Some of you all actually knew that, didn't you? Okay. And do you know how many teams are in the Big Ten? Ten, of course, right? So I heard a bunch of people that, no, not ten. There are 14 teams now in the, in the uh, Big Ten. Say, what? What? Well, we call them the Big Ten, but obviously the number has changed in time, and, uh, and yet the name still is the same. And maybe that's a little bit of, of, of what's going on here. I think perhaps the best analogy of all uh, um, is to think about this as the counterpoint of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Because, in fact, you have that very um, comparison made in the Scripture. For example, in the New Jerusalem, 
in Revelation chapter 21, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are on the gates and the names of the 12 apostles are on the foundation, right? So there's the whole of the, uh, you know, of the church, the people of God, and, 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 and all of these. So, so here's, here's a comparison and here's an analogy that is, comes from the Scripture itself. But if you think about it, um, what are the 12 tribes? And you begin to sit down and you list them. And, and, and if you think about it, the exact identity of the 12 tribes varies throughout the Scripture. So Jacob had 12 sons, right? We know that. Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. But Joseph, one of his sons, is not counted as a tribe in and of himself. Rather, two of his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are the heads of tribes, which if you are really good at math and do all the numbers, you say, well, that makes 13. So now there are 13 tribes of Israel. And so in order to come down to 12 again, sometimes Levi isn't counted as one of the tribes. Of course, it's a little bit of a different tribe. So, you know, sometimes we talk about the other 12. Well, you get to Revelation and then Revelation chapter 7, and there's a whole nother count again. Um, in Revelation, it lists the 12 tribes, and Manasseh is counted, and Ephraim is also counted, but he's called Joseph. But then Levi is counted, and Dan is left out. So, in other words, we call them the 12 tribes, even though, you know, the Lord in His workings out of everything ended up making them more than strictly 12 exactly. And I think maybe that's the way to think about this in terms of the apostleship. The 12 apostles were original, the original 12, but also the 12 apostles or just the apostles is a stylized way of speaking about the 12 plus Paul and perhaps James as well. Or leaving James out, we might say there are 12, really 13 apostles just as there were 12, really, 13 tribes. I'm throwing that out because I know that's a question that comes up. In fact, I had it not too long ago when I was talking about apostleship. Somebody said, well, which one is it, Paul or, or Matthias? And that's, that's the, I think, the best way to understand it in terms of that correlation. Um, now, the most important thing about the apostles, and again, we're going to try to say, what does this all mean for us? But let's just talk about what they are and, and what, what the Lord said about them. The most important thing about the apostles is that Christ himself made incredible and unprecedented promises about these men in their unique role in the church. And I'm going to have you turn to a few places. So if you get ready to turn, go to go ahead and go to Ma, uh, John chapter 14. John 14 and verse 25. John 14 verse 25. Jesus, speaking to his apostles, says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you what? All things, and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. This is an amazing statement when you really think about it. I mean, we've all had an exam. Maybe you had, you've had a final exam um, and, and you had to go back and remember everything from the whole semester, right? You had quizzes throughout the semester, and at the end, she just says, okay, everything in the whole semester is fair game. <gasps> and you're like, oh, wow, I've got to really study for this thing. 
And we know how hard it is to remember uh, something from last week, much less last month or last year or a whole semester. But these men, the Bible says, who have spent three and a half years with Christ are going to be led by the Spirit in such a way that they recall everything He taught them and that they recall it with such detail that their inspired record will be um, truth and will be all the truth that Christians need. He said, the Spirit will lead you into all truth. He will bring all of these things that I've ever taught you back to your remembrance. So that, friends, when we read the Gospels, when we read these accounts from the Apostles, we can have confidence uh, in what we read and in the, the validity of it because of this kind of unprecedented spirit ministry among these men. And then if you turn just to the very next chapter, chapter 15, verses 26 and 27, you see he continues to speak. And he says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from, my, from the Father, the Spirit of truth, that is, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. So part of the special ministry of the apostles is to bear eye witness, eye and ear witness testimony to Jesus and to His resurrection. And that is a key mark of discipleship, that these people are able to bear witness, eyewitness account of, the, of Jesus and His resurrection. Um, even Paul, who calls himself one born out of due time, says in 1 Corinthians, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So this is a key mark of apostleship. They are people who were eyewitnesses of the life and especially of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then if you look in chapter 16, just the next chapter over, again he's speaking in verse 12, the Lord. He says I, to his apostles, I, have, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are what? To come. So here again is a promise like in chapter 14 that the Spirit would lead the apostles into all truth, but not only that he would lead them into all truth, but he would also give them supernatural revelation even beyond Jesus' teaching comprehensive truth for the people of God, and even a prophetic gift to talk about what will come in the future. This is, I'm telling you, this is unprecedented, um, uh, an unprecedented gift that he gives to the apostles. Now, sometimes we read these verses and we sort of, we kind of take them and apply them to ourselves. and They apply to us, but only in a secondary way. This is what I tried to point out when we were in Matthew a while back. We were looking in chapter 10 when Jesus sent out the apostles and we were saying, well, see, we see ourselves in the apostles, and, but only in a secondary way. In, in a primary way, we are under this ministry, which is profound. The ministry of the apostles in the life of Christ's church is, is um, essential for you to get hold of for all kinds of reasons, and I'll get to those. But this is a, uh, a really unique ministry. Now, now, let me show two other passages now, and then I think one more here, one or two at the end. 
Um, so Matthew chapter 16, are you not tired yet? Okay, you can shake your head or kind of wiggle your arms if you need to. I know we had lunch. Matthew chapter 16 <clears throat> and verses 13 through 19. Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus had come into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he said to his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus answered and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What we see here is that the apostles became the foundation of the whole Christian church, right? What does Jesus say? On this rock, I will build my church. You know, we, we lay a foundation out of concrete. They would lay foundations out of rock, a big rock, hopefully, a big, solid, steady rock. And Jesus said he was going to build his church on the foundation of the apostles. Now, that, of course, brings up um, an argument that you probably have heard um, or at least heard that Catholic people make, which is that Peter alone is the foundation of Christ's church. He is the rock upon which Christ is building his church. But I want you to notice that Peter here is speaking not merely for himself, but for the whole group. Listen, all of the apostles bore this testimony, not simply Peter. And the proof is that every one of them would die for this testimony before long. Now true, when Jesus said in this passage, I give you the keys to the kingdom and whatever you bind, whatever you loose, he spoke in the singular. And that's an argument, right? Well, he's talking about Peter. But when Jesus was speaking to Peter here, he was speaking to Peter in his role as spokesman for them all. That is the whole apostolic company. And the key is that in chapter 18, that same chapter, in fact, where the apostles are arguing among themselves, who is the greatest? Our Lord makes this exact same statement, but in the plural so then it was, here's the conclusion, it was the apostolic eyewitness testimony about Jesus Christ as the Son of God, His teachings brought infallibly to their memory by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit of revelation and of prophecy that became the foundation upon which Christ builds His church. And you see that most explicitly in this passage in Ephesians chapter 4. So turn there as our last one here for a moment. Ephesians chapter 4. I say you see it most explicitly here. 
and verse number 19 and 20. Ephesians 4.19. Um, sorry. Yeah, okay. Chapter 2. I said 4, didn't I? Okay, I gave you the wrong, the wrong directions. Chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens, talking about you know Gentile people who were outside, they were aliens to the people of God. But he says, Now you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the cornerstone. So the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, especially in connection with the New Testament prophets, is foundational to the church. The whole church, Jesus' whole church, is built on the testimony of the apostles and especially in their connection with the, with the New Testament prophets which gave us the Holy Scriptures. Um, and this is why 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28 explicitly enumerates Christ's gifts when it says that He gave to the church, first of all, what? Apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. You see, what happens is that teachers, Christian teachers, even today, like, like my teaching ministry, it rests, it's built on, if it's, if, it's a, if it's a true Christian ministry, it is built on a foundation. The foundation is Christ. The foundation that was laid through the apostolic testimony. The apostles became the foundation of Christ's church, which is why in Revelation that their names are inscribed on the st foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. Now, how often do you lay a foundation for your building? How often does that happen? Once. There are religious groups today that claim apostles, modern-day apostles. Um, so, for example, Catholic, uh, the Catholic Church sees bi bishops, Catholic bishops, as kind of successors of the apostles. The Mormon Church, the Latter-day Saints, have modern-day apostles that were appointed for the church by the followers of Joseph Smith um, until there was later kind of a split among them. We still have apostles today. Um, some, some charismatic churches call certain gifted leaders apostles of, the, of Christ church. And, I mean, there certainly are unusually gifted spiritual leaders and missionaries. But to call them apostles, I believe, friends, confuses the issue of the uniqueness of that first generation as foundational eyewitnesses to the life and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and diminishes the, the, the unprecedented promises that were made to them by our Lord Himself. And I think we're, 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 we've taken the first step toward what could become a wrong path when we begin to acknowledge people today as apostles, okay? At least in, in the sense of any kind of exalted, you know, I mean, we, we might talk about someone who's sent out by a church, you know, he has the authority of that church, but I'm talking about an apostle of Jesus Christ. This was a unique role within the history 
of Christ's church. They are foundational in the, the building up of, of Christ's church. Um, it, it, when you get to the book of Acts, um, and you get to Acts chapter 16, beyond that, the apostles are never mentioned again in the book of Acts. There is, when James dies, James the brother of, of John, when he dies in Acts chapter 12, there is no replacement for him. The apostles are never brought up in Paul's instruction to um, the pastors, Timothy and Titus, the pastoral letters. Um, later, their role was foundational at the beginning of the church. The found, when the foundation was laid, there was no need for any other foundation. Years ago, I was, uh, I was in, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania for a conference. And um, while I was there, I took one little quick trip over to see Independence Hall. Have you all ever been there where the, uh, where the Constitutional Convention met? Um, in, the, in, in, in creating the, the foundations for our country. It's actually a pretty small room, kind of surprised. You went in, go in there and you can take a look. And, and there those men argued and hammered out um, as, a, as a special commission from the various colonies, they hammered out a founding document that we call the Constitution of the United States. And that Constitution, once it was in place became what was sufficient or what was supposed to be sufficient for the building of a country. So that these men had a unique role in history, a foundational role, and produced then a document which, what do we do today? We pour over it, we read it, we interpret it, we argue about it, but it is our guiding force. And in much the same way, that's exactly the way that the church of Jesus Christ is built. The apostles laid the foundation in connection with the, with the prophets who were associated with them. You, you know that, for example, Mark was associated with Peter. Luke uh, wrote in connection with the apostle Paul. And, uh, and so, so these apostles and prophets laid the foundation for us by providing for us an inspired document. And that their inspired testimony in the canon of the New Testament becomes the rule for Christ's church, along with all the Scriptures. That is then the most significant way that the apostles are, um, are important for us today. Now, that's who the apostles are, um, and I want to talk just in our, the rest of our time about what does this mean for us. Um, what is the significance that the apostles were appointed by Christ to rule over the church in a foundational way, in a way that really lay the foundation of the church. Um, so let me give you some applications. Let me give you six. Now, the first couple will take a, a minute to explain, and then the last couple will go by very quick. So don't, don't despair. <clears throat> take a breath. <sighs> okay. What does it mean today for our church to be ruled by the apostles, what is the significance of their part in the, 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 the rule of the church? Number one, if we would be ruled by Christ, we must be ruled by apostolic Scripture. It may seem pretty straightforward, but that is so important. We must be bound to the Scripture. No one may say, I believe in Christ, or I love Jesus, who blatantly disregards the teaching of the Bible. 
His authority, Christ's authority, is given to those men, those apostles. And to disregard them and the instructions of the Scripture is to disregard nothing less than our Lord Himself. And it's also important by extension to note that all of the words of the apostles in Holy Scripture are binding for us today. There are people, you may know this, that, um, that like to pick and choose out of the Bible. There are people, for example, some liberal, so quote, liberal kind of Christians who say that, you know, what really is important are the words of Jesus in the Bible. We just got to get back to the words of Jesus, you know. Sometimes some of this other stuff, you know, I could disagree with that, but, you know, we just all need to kind of live by the way that Jesus taught us. Um, he's authoritative. Um, and, and some people say, hey, well, I, why, that's, hey, why not just go a little farther? Let's just pick and choose out of Jesus' statements what we think is, is uh, real and what we think is not real. Let's disregard the way the apostles structured the record of Jesus' teachings, and let's just say, well, this little snippet was authentically Jesus' words, and this little snippet over here, this came, you know, this came out of thin air. This was something that got interpolated into the Scripture as time went by. There are people today who say that very thing. Our whole faith is built on the Lord's commissioning and unusual empowering of those apostles. And if that apostolic foundation is eroded, we have no foundation to stand on by which to have Fellowship with God. And we'll get to that in a minute. There are people who literally do this. I mean, I mean, Tom, I mean literally. Thomas Jefferson, you may know, this is kind of infamous. He literally cut and pasted a Bible, so to speak. Right? Literally cutting out and pa- with a penknife and pasting together sections of the Gospels. He wrote in a letter to a friend, quote, in extracting the pure principles which he, Christ, taught, we should have to strip off the artificial vestments in which they have been muffled by priests who have uh, travestied them into various forms. We must reduce our volume to the simple evangelists. Select even from them the very words only of Jesus. This is cut and paste Christianity. This is like taking the parts I like and disregarding the others. If Christ's authority is given to the apostles, then if we would submit to Him, we must submit to them, and that is to the Scriptures that they gave us. That's the first implication. Every church must continue to fight to be robustly biblical, must re-examine themselves in light of the apostolic testimony and everything they do be brought under its rule. Number two. Number two, true churches carefully and faithfully confess the apostolic faith. True churches carefully and faithfully confess the apostolic faith. A confession is a public, verbal affirmation of what the church believes about Christ and often what the church doesn't believe about Christ. A confession is going on the record, so to speak, about our faith. And it's rooted, actually, in the passage that we read earlier, which was Matthew 16. You remember Jesus came and said, Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And remember Peter's confession? His verbal affirmation, his 
driving a stake in the ground and saying, this is what I believe, this is what we believe. We believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. This was his confession. And Jesus' response was, here's, this is important, Jesus' response was, on this rock I will build my church. On Peter, in his role as public verbal confessor of the faith. And in turn, on the common confession of faith of all of the apostles, as Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us. Our faith is built on a confession of faith. That makes sense? Christ said he would build his church on a confession of faith. What? Driving a stake in the ground, here is what we believe. Now, of course, the simplest confession, probably in all the Bible, is found in Romans 10.9. It's three words. You know what it is? Yeah, remember, quote the verses? Yeah, exactly. Jesus is Lord. There's a confession of faith for you. Jesus is Lord. And that is a saving confession, Paul says. If, in fact, it comes from a heart of faith and an understanding that the resurrection is central to his lordship, because remember, he even, even that simple confession, has to, he has to sort of add to it by saying, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? So Jesus, even Jesus is Lord... Even, even right in that context, sort of begs for elaboration. Ideally, that's all the confession we need. Jesus is Lord. However, because of sin and because of unbelief and because of our inherent slowness of mind, confessions must necessarily grow more detailed. And the apostles themselves had to go back and correct errors about what we believe, about their own testimony. They had to expound on the doctrine that they had revealed. They had to set the record straight because false teachers were already creeping into the church, even in the days of the apostles, people who denied the full divinity of Jesus or denied the full humanity of Jesus. There were, there were Judaizers, there were Gnostics, there were people who said Jesus didn't really and truly bodily rise from the dead. There were all kinds of you know, things going on. And so what is, what is the New Testament? A lot of our New Testament is the apostles coming back and elaborating on that simple confession, Jesus is Lord, or you are the Messiah, the Son of God, and, and correcting and clarifying. So even the, in the apostolic days, confessions of faith grew more complicated, or more detailed, I should say, not complicated. First, Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is an example of this within the Bible itself. Here's the confession that we've used in our worship sometimes. Great indeed, Paul writes, is the mystery of godliness that we confess. And here it is. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. So there again is, a, is an example of the progression of the confessing faith of, of the church, the apostolic church. Apostolic in, in the proper sense, not in the term, you know, not talking about the apostolic denomination that we know today. As the church continued to clarify and combat falsehood, 
confessions necessarily grew longer and more detailed. And even as church history continued, we have sometimes recited together the Apostles' Creed that comes to us from I mean, the very first few centuries, as far as we know, of, of the Christian church that grew to 12 lines of affirmation. Or the Nicene Creed that comes from the 4th century that was expanded even further. Or the Athanasian Creed that, that felt the need not only, in this case, for affirmations, but also of denials, of false understandings. We were, talk, we were talking with some guys about this at lunch, right? Sometimes our confession of faith needs to say what we believe and then not what we don't believe and what is a wrong understanding. Or the, like the declaration of Chalcedon that was more that more fully elucidated the dual nature of Jesus Christ. Or many of the Protestant churches that clarified the gospel, especially in contradiction to Rome and the historic creeds of the Reformation era. Or even our own church, which, hold, which holds to a confession of faith that owes much to all of these confessions that have come before it. Apostolic churches are churches that are not doctrinally minimalist, in other words, right? Are you with me? Churches built on the apostles' foundation are churches that are not doctrinally minimalist. In other words, they don't just say, hey, we're all here together just because we all love Jesus. Well, you, you might all say that, but then you've got to ask the question, well, who is Jesus? And you might have 10 different opinions. Or what does it really look like to love Jesus? You see the inherent need for a confession of what we really believe. In other words, it's probably good that we are careful about statements like, no creed but the Bible. In one sense, that's right. No creed of man is apostolic if it's out of line with the Bible. The Bible must sit in judgment over any creed of man, any confession of faith. We must never, friends, allow ourselves to be more committed to a creed or a tradition or a denomination or what my mama raised me to believe than we are to God's Word. Now, if, if we have a good tradition and a good mama, we say, amen, thank God for that, but we test everything in light of God's Word. So in one sense, there, there's, there's something that's right about this, but it's also true, listen, on the other hand, that every kind of religious denomination and cult out there claims we believe the Bible, right? The Bible's enough. And the Bible, belief in the Bible, quote-unquote, is a cover for all kinds of heresy and false teaching. True churches, beginning even in the days of the apostles themselves, have stated publicly, have stated their views as they are informed by the apostolic testimony. Publicly, verbally, carefully, and courageously, they took their stand, and so should we. All right, that's the second. Now, so we'll go quicker. Number three. Number three, the apostolic testimony is what gives us confidence in the canon, the New Testament canon of Scripture. Now, this could take, this could be a whole other sermon, and it would probably be helpful to you, because I know some of you have run across people who've said, oh yeah, well, I read a book by, I don't know, you name it, some guy, Dan Brown, or who, who's, what's the guy, 
Huh? Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman, or one of those guys, you know. I mean, I was, uh, these, guys, these guys are actually on the shelf in Barnes & Noble. You walk in there, there's Bart Ehrman set, sitting there on the shelf. I read a book by such and such, and you know, I'm wondering, what about all these lost books of the Bible? How do you know that you really have the Bible? I mean, it was just a bunch of political maneuvering, and, you know, it was a bunch of really powerful people that voted to pick the books that they liked, and, you know, I mean, you know, we, we've all probably, if not heard people say that, heard of people who are saying that to somebody else. And, uh, and, and again, and I only barely have time, I've probably already run out of time, but to, to say that the, the, a doctrine, a biblical doctrine of apostleship is, is a key part of, of, of thinking about this. Um, so let me say it as briefly as I can. The most important consideration in the recognition of what books were inspired, talking about the New Testament in particular here, the most important consideration was the testimony of Christ's apostles. The apostles were chosen by the Lord Himself. They laid the foundation of the church. That was their, their job. They directed, and they directed that their writings should be universally or widely disseminated as Scripture, Galatians 1, 2, and 6, Colossians 4, 16, 2 Peter 1, 15 to 18, Revelation 1, 3 to 4. You can go back and listen to the tape if you missed those. Um, the apostles further verified one another and affirmed one another's writings, 1 Timothy 5, 18, 2 Peter 3, 15, 16, Jude 17 and 18. And the apostles also actually in their lifetime corrected false reports and exposed pseudo-epistles. John 21, 20 to 24, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 2, and 3, 17. The apostles then are so critical. And because of that, one of the most important questions you can ask about canonicity is the date of the writing. Because every New Testament book was written during the lifetime of the apostles. And for that reason, uh, I'm sorry, so, so a book that's written after the lifetime of the apostles is beyond the limits of what Christ said that he would do. And already that eliminates a number of potential pretenders to the canon. And those books that were written during the lifetimes of the apostles, or possibly anyway, written during the lifetimes of the apostles, were judged by the apostles themselves. That determination then of which books are in our New Testament was not made, and our hope doesn't rest on a pope or a council or on the emperor. That determination was made by the apostles under the direct authority and unique authority of Jesus Christ. And under the providence of God, the testimony of those apostles was made known to more and more of the churches until it was finally widely acknowledged that a certain book was inspired and therefore canonical. You know, well, get it off on that, but um, the apostolic nature of the church means that she has one. Oh, sorry, and that's that's the end of that one. So it is it is the apostles. That, uh, that are foundational in beginning to talk about um, the issue of canon. If you have more questions, I can point you to some resources on that. Number four, hastening on. The apostolic nature of the church means that she has one unified earthly rule. Like the Trinity, though the church is many, the church is one. 
Right? We looked at this a little bit last week because she has one head. There's only one church. Though the churches are many in our world. The Nicene Creed in the 4th century lists four attributes or four characteristics of the church. You probably have heard them even if you don't know them. The church, there is one holy, Catholic, meaning universal, not Roman necessarily, one holy, Catholic, apostolic church. That is, there are many assemblies or congregations of believers, there are many elders and pastors, but they are unified under the one rule of the inspired apostolic testimony. And the more we come to understand that testimony in the Scripture and to submit to it, the more unified the people of God will be. And that's what gives me great hope for the kinds of ministries and churches out there who give themselves to careful exposition of the Word of God, that there is a great hope that we may all grow into a better understanding, a greater unity in the body of Christ. It may take generation after generation and years after years, but uh, we have one earthly authority under Christ, and that is the apostolic testimony. And finally, number five and six quickly. Number five, the apostles alone give us insight into previous revelation. If you want to understand your Old Testament, look at the apostolic explanation of it. And the key passage here is Ephesians. If you're still in Ephesians, take a look at chapter 3. Are you still there? I think I was there for some reason. Look at 3, verses 4 and 5. We can take time to read this. He says, um, when you read this, Paul writes to the Ephesians, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Listen to how he describes the mystery of Christ now which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul is revealing a mystery. Now, a mystery is not something that the Old Testament did not know about. There are some people who say that. Well, it was something that was absolutely... Old Testament people were totally oblivious of it until God revealed it, and then they knew it. That's what mystery means. I do not believe that's what mystery means. Mystery is something that is revealed in mystery form. It is sketched out. There is an outline. This is the way it is used in Daniel, which is the premier Old Testament background of this. And yet it's only known with types and shadows and sketches and visions, and and it's not fully realized yet. You don't get the clear picture. It's like watching a mystery movie through the first time or reading a mystery book. And you, there are all kinds of red herrings. And, you know, if you were really smart enough, you could probably figure it out. If you really were diligent enough studying it, you could probably get it. But, you know, most of us, we're just kind of reading through. We're having a good time. And we get to the end and we, go, we're, we're, and we kind of, you know, we all say, oh, yeah. Oh, that's who did it. But if you go back and read it a second time, well, now I'm telling you, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, oh, I see. That's the way mystery works. So what happens is the apostles in the New Testament shed light, shed the New Testament light on the Old Testament and help us to go back and look at our Old Testaments and to say, oh yeah, now I see, now I get it. But it is that apostolic testimony that is central to that understanding of previous revelation. Okay, and finally, number six. Um, which, Which, by the way, 
number five still, means that we need to pay attention to the Old the New Testament interpretation of the Old. Number six, and finally, though we are not eyewitnesses to Christ, we may truly have fellowship with Christ. Personal fellowship with Christ through His apostles. This is what John says in 1 John. We won't even take time to read it, but 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. John says this, We were with Jesus. We touched Him. We heard Him. We saw Him. And because we have firsthand knowledge of Him, you, in fellowship with us, can actually have fellowship with Him. Firsthand fellowship, as it were, through the channel of the apostles. It is the apostolic testimony in the New Testament Scriptures, friends, that give us the hope that we can have fellowship with God. True communion with God comes through that firsthand eyewitness testimony of the glory of Jesus Christ. So the New Testament is all sweet to us, and it is holy, and it rules us, and it ought to rule us. I hope that as a church, as the years go by, if we all kind of, under the teaching and the, the leadership and the, you know, the personal study of the Scripture, we begin to come to a place where we think that the Scripture goes in a different direction from where we've been going either personally or as an entire church, I hope we'll do this. I hope we'll say, whoa, okay, time to totally rethink what we're doing and be willing to be constantly being changed and reformed by the Word of God the apostolic text. We submit ourselves to those specially chosen apostles of Jesus Christ. That is foundational to the church. Heavenly Father, we bless you for these men and we give thanks especially for your, the power of your spirit that took such broken and flawed men and made them holy, infallible sources of for our communion with you by the scriptures that you've given us. We bless you for them. We pray that you'd give us a spirit to be submitted to them in every respect. In Christ's name, amen.